This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 272 and I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you this show. It is so full of positivity. It's a beautiful story of change for a family of eight and uh, a ton of inspiration when it comes to growing food. And when I say literally no matter how little space you have to grow food in, I really, really mean it. Uh, Nikki and her husband Dave are passionate about helping families grow their own food. In fact, they do this primarily through their permaculture gardens at the growmyownfood.com website. Tons of gardening resources, free webinars, blogs, a whole bunch of resources, jam jam packed. And we're going to talk a little bit about an app that's in the works as well. I came across their work online. Turns out Nikki is actually a listener of the show, so I couldn't be more thrilled to turn this inspiring listener into a leader for us all to be inspired by today in the topic of growing our own food. I know as an inner city chick myself, I know there are lots of people who listen to the show who also live in cities. Uh, We can sometimes feel like we've failed before we've begun because you can never quite grow enough to feed yourself. But what I really love about what Nikki talks about today is that there are a couple of really concrete examples by which we could actually grow 100% of at least just a couple of types of things rather than thinking I'm never going to be able to grow enough. And I think that shift is fantastic. Perfect if you also live in much tougher growing conditions regionally, in the outback, in the bush. Uh, It's a very rugged country out in some parts of Australia, as I know from having toured around and given talks everywhere. Uh, And what she teaches can be applied anywhere. And that's what I love. Now, you'll especially love this, some of the Northern Hemisphere people who are listening to the show today, because that app that's coming is specific to the Northern Hemisphere, to America actually right now. Um, and uh, I, I'm so excited for it to be a worldwide offering in terms of location-based advice and, and consultation. Uh, but for now, that's going to be just for you guys over in America. I'm going to hook into that conversation in just a sec. I want to remind you, we have our wonderful major supporter of the podcast all year this year. This one's for the Aussies and Oz Climate is their name. Now, Oz Climate have an incredible range of air filters and dehumidifiers to suit any type of home or climate, size, floor plan, you name it, they can help you. Your code is 10% off for the whole year and it's simply low tox life. And what I love about Oz Climate is you don't have to just be on a faceless website and try and figure it out yourself. You can hit the contact button, jump on the phone or send them an email and they will talk you through your home or apartment and look at your floor plan with you and think about the kind of space you have and help you try to minimize how many appliances you might need for your space um, through simple rotational techniques. Uh, I really, really love that they are happy to pick up the phone and chat to people who really want to make sure that you're getting the right thing because that means you will get the right thing. They couldn't be a lovelier crew of people. I can't love more how many of you guys have uh, written me messages or tagged me on Facebook or in Insta to say thanks so much for the recommendation. We love them. Uh, The proof is definitely in the pudding. Oz Climate is the name of the dehumidifiers and Winix is the name of their air purifiers, but you can find them at ozclimate.com.au and that's A-U-S climate.com.au. Now, let's start talking about growing some more food, shall we? Enjoy my chat with the inspiring Nikki Schrouder. Hello, Nikki. How are you? 
I'm absolutely brilliant. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm fabulous. And yourself? I am so great. And I am so excited to have you on the show. I love it when people I have on the show, listen to the show. And then, you know, it's just such a nice thing to have uh, a, a new guest be an old listener uh, and uh, an absolute pleasure to talk about permaculture again, which is a subject we've had on the show through various uh, amazing people in the past. And I'm excited about what you are going to bring to the table because it's altogether different. And it's a shout out for our city peeps. If you thought permaculture was not something that applied to you today is all about changing your mind. So Nikki, tell me, how did you grow up? Are you a born again gardener? Or did you have parents who had a plot and you know, it was always just a part of the fabric of your family? Oh, I was totally a black thumb, Alex. Really? Uh, I grew, yes, I grew up in the city of in the Philippines in Manila, actually, and and in the city you just are so disconnected to what grows when. It's you're so reliant on the groceries, and I didn't know how to grow anything, but we were forced to learn it when our children were diagnosed with allergies. With food right. Allergies. So talk me through that. What kind, how did that present and what was your journey of discovery about the, the food you had been eating? Yeah, so at, when we were newly married, we were still eating at McDonald's and um, Kentucky Fried Chicken when we were, I was pregnant with my first. And when, she, and when she was born, she was diagnosed with failure to thrive. And she was um, yeah, 18 pounds for what seemed like forever. And she was allergic to chicken, peas, beans, tree, all tree nuts, peanuts, and dairy and gluten. And that wow. was wow. So what was she able to eat? So they had me, they had me stop breastfeeding actually, but I would still kind of try. There were no allergy cookbooks at that time. It was 15 years ago. And so we tried um to do something called neutramogen, which was a very, you know, chemical thing. But we felt like there must be something wrong here. Why does she have so many allergies? And then it happened again with our second child and allergies for fish and, and, um, and nuts. But, you know, that's when we're like, we're questioning the food system. There must be something wrong. We could see the trend in rise of allergies in kids, especially peanut allergies. We ourselves had like a few allergies, but they're not anything like the way that they had it. And that's when we started thinking, we have to grow this stuff ourselves. We can't trust what we're getting in the groceries. How do we know that it's clean or doesn't have um, chemicals in them? Mm, yeah, it's, it's amazing how a health challenge can open your eyes, isn't it? For me, it was chronic tonsillitis and a naturopath helping me identify gluten as something that just caused the overgrowth of strep. I had to cut it, but I ate a lot of packaged foods. And that's the first time in my life I actually looked at the lists of what was on those foods. And then when you don't recognize anything, you're like, hold on. I just thought this was oats and chocolate, but what's all this other stuff? Uh, it can be a really rude awakening. And so like you, I ended up in the arms of produce because that was safe. At least I could see it and eat it and knew, but with allergies, I'm curious to see, given so many produce items were also allergens, how did you navigate that? And how did you trust that you were on the right path, even though at the start, a lot of those foods would have technically been harmful still? Yeah, so we had to eliminate them in the, uh, in the, in the interim. Um, and there were still things that they could eat that were produce, but were not um, peas or peanuts so there were still like tomatoes they were there were no selection on each allergy so we started we tried to grow our own tomatoes and we failed miserably um, and but we were trying to get like the most what is the least we can be sure of that quality um and 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 yet we were failing so what happened was on one of our bookstore dates my husband dave and i stumbled upon the word permaculture you guys went on bookstore dates? Yes, when there were bookstores, right? I love it. Yes. Um, and from there, we researched it. We found that it not just, it was a way that maybe we were not approaching it right. We weren't working with nature. We were more like trying to force one thing to grow for us instead of just being an army of 
ecosystem around us to, to do the work for us. And that's what we were learning little by little where um, Australians like Jeff Lawton, we watched his reading the desert videos and that was just life-changing for us. So we went down the rabbit hole, got certified ourselves for permaculture. And after that, we were really more and more every year. The first year was 90 pounds from our backyard. And the next year, 90 pounds again, the third year, 190. And then finally, like 300 pounds. And um, the, net, the interesting thing is, as we were eating more from the backyard, the allergies, and of course, this is just, uh, you know, doc, we are the only anecdotal. anecdotal. Yes. N equals one. It's the best experiment on earth. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But we have four other kids. So we have six total. Wow. You guys were busy. We are. Yeah, we, mm. we are still. Mm. Um, four that followed did not have any allergies. And then the, allergies of the first two, they slowly outgrew. And right now they can eat anything except certain tree nuts. They can even eat almonds and chestnuts. And one of them can eat hazelnuts, but they still um, can't eat peanuts. But a lot has been eliminated. They can eat bread, milk, chicken, pork. So a lot of these these foods they can now eat. And I feel like somehow there was a cleansing there that happened. And I just we just and we felt better. Dave, my husband, used to have food poisoning bouts, and now he rarely has it. We've been. Um, it's amazing what quitting KFC can do. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's so tragic that still in the mainstream, like I saw an ad the other day that KFC is now delivering with drones, you know, this cool new technology to get you your dinner faster and easily and contact free and all that BS. And you just think, no, we don't need you guys to do your thing better, faster, cheaper. We actually just need you to go and be farmers. <laughs> we need that whole thing gone. Um, now, so you were just saying there uh, how many you, you've gotten to 300 pounds of food. Uh, so that's roughly 160 kilos for the Aussies. Um, oh, no, 140, sorry, my bad. And uh, that represents about 25% of the food that you would eat in terms of a produce um, shop over the year. How big is your land? Because a lot of Sydney people think, oh, well, this isn't going to apply to me. There's no way I could grow that much food. But people would be surprised, right? So you really don't have to have much. All we grow in is 500 square feet, which is 46 square meters. We grow against the fences in raised beds and in the middle of our backyard. So we don't have a yard to run. We can run through the paths and under trellises. But um, it's not a big lawn at all. It's every everywhere we can grow, oh, we've grown. Yeah, and and so in terms of like I think of Australian urban houses, it might be a terrace house or a townhouse um, where there isn't a huge plot of land, making the most of those side passages, any fences that you have, and really optimising the space you have for food and changing the idea that you just need to have this lawn that you look out on when you look out the back of your kitchen right which is traditionally everyone's kept their lawn and they've had lawn mowers and what is it all for if we're all getting sicker and sicker right and less and less biodiverse yes so we're super lazy gardeners we don't mow <laughs> uh, just harvest <laughs> once you bet you maybe have 10 days of hard work mostly going into the harvest, the pruning and the installation. And the installation is just once. But um, for a backyard like ours, it's really beautiful to look out and see a beautiful trellis, arch trellis filled with the blossoms of your zucchini and, uh, and a terrace where you have growing different potted trees, strawberries and herbs that you can just grab and go straight back into the kitchen and make your food from make your meal from the food that you're ha harvesting in your backyard. Mm. So it is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And there are some inspiring people in uh, the city space showing us how to do it like yourself and, 
a few people I can think of here. Uh, I know up on the rooftop is a fabulous uh, chick who's literally just using her rooftop garden to grow most of her food. And she's harvesting blueberries and peaches. And I mean, it's, you know, you think you can just have a few herbs and some lettuce, but if you apply permaculture principles, right, you can actually optimize across all sorts of different plants and seasons. Yes, you're right. And that's just, I just came off of a training of a webinar where I was teaching the same thing. And you can grow trees and guilds where I'm talking about our backyard has one, two, three, four, five, six. We have six trees in ground, seven. <clears throat> We've got tons of strawberries, but the trees are pear trees, plum trees, a pawpaw. I wonder wow. if you guys can yeah, up in any... Queensland we do yes further up that's one yeah so mm. we have two pawpaws we have gummy berries underneath them and then we have a trellis for the summer squashes and beans and pea and spring peas um we basically make guilds that are overlapping and try to maximize or optimize that space by reaching for the sky and growing vertically or putting our trees against the fence and getting more fruit that way by pruning them um up against the fence so they don't take that much space mm -hmm. and, and i'm just going to stop you right there nikki because i'm just approaching this with a beginner's mind and thinking someone's listening right now going whoa 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 back sister like that sounds really complicated and it sounds like i'm going to need to do a diploma just to get started what would you say to the person who dreams of that being the thing that they can walk out into their back garden but never believes for once that they might actually be able to do that themselves. So I would say start with sprouting microgreens, start with sprouts. And the reason that I say that is in permaculture, we have this idea of zones of use or the frequency that you visit a place. So the lower it is, like if it's zone zero, that's your house, zone one, that's your kitchen garden, zone two, that's your maybe your bushes, and then zone three, it's your orchards. So the farther you get, the higher the numbers are. And you always start with zone zero. And zone zero, what can you grow inside your home that you can eat? There's several things, but one of the easiest things I have them, uh, I'm gonna show them, are microgreens um, that back on, this, this is also in the middle of our kitchen table so that we don't forget that we're actually growing them. <laughs> and they're mm -hmm. not just on the sunny window. Because mm, you can, and I'm eating them while I'm chatting. Because <laughs> you can good. eat them. <laughs> you can um, utilize any, for you guys, north facing window. Um, and in the, and in the northern hemisphere, south facing windows, you can utilize those windows and put up a tray even and use what you have if you have a nice sprouting tray you can use that if you don't you can use the lid of a cookie you know you can use a cookie tin that's you've you've already eaten all the cookies out of or anything that you can put soil into yeah okay so let's talk about sprouts in more detail we've got our cookie tin what do we do next so fill it with soil mm -hmm. um any soil what, what kind of soil so for me, um, of course, I like using organic mixes, of course. Mm -hmm. and, but if you use what you have, if you want to, if you don't have any soil um, and if the ground is ground is good in your backyard, you can go ahead and dig it up and use that soil if you want to start off with, because a lot of the nutrition and microgreens, the more um, rich your soil is, of course, the more nutrient dense too your greens will be. But there's a lot of it already packed in the seed. So some people sprout straight from water, but I would say start with a soil, like sprout, sprout that tray. And you can do the water thing, the growing in different media a little later on, because that growing in soil, growing your microgreens in soil, watching them grow for seven days and then harvesting them and eating them is such a great game changer for you to start learning how to sow your tomatoes and your bigger crops mm. in seed. Well, and it's like a quick success, right? Seven days, like who can't do that? And so we've yeah. got our soil. Where have we bought our seeds from? I know you guys sell seeds, which is great for the Northern Hemisphere peeps, 
but um, I'm pretty sure Australian Customs would, uh, you know, get very angry with us if we tried to bring those in. So we're... That, that is so true because I have tried and no, 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 it doesn't work. No. So where, what are a couple of tips for finding a really great seed provider for people? Oh, so there are, um, we, on our website, we do have a link where we talk about the difference between heirloom, hybrid, and open pollinated seeds. <clears throat> and so um, heirloom seeds, and of course, like then you have whether they were grown organically and non-GMO. So the the ones that we would we would steer away from, of course, would be anything that's non-GMO because we don't want genetically modified seeds. Those ones will not be fertile for the next. So if you harvest seeds from that plant, it's not going to grow again. Um, like its parent plant. The other thing is also heirloom seeds are those seeds that have just been traditionally passed on from mother to daughter, from you know father to grand grandson, so on, so on. But so that they don't necessarily have, you know, they're not necessarily uh, vetted or they're just like your heirloom treasures that your family and some um, seed companies will take these and catalog them. Um, in America, we have something called Seed Savers Exchange. There's what specializes in that. And and those types of, even though they don't say um, organic necessarily, when they're an heirloom variety, you're sure that it's not been hybridized or it's not been genetically uh, manipulated because it was a parent, you know, um, somebody who was talking about soil recently, Dan Kittredge, um, he was likening the harvesting of your own seed and by and using your own seed uh, very much to like when you give birth and the and the the baby goes through the birth canal and gets all the good microflora of the birth canal and and that immunity and that's if you can find a source that harvests their own seed or they know the farmers that harvest their their seed in an op in that open pollinated way those are the best sources. Um, and and sometimes even if they're organically grown, if they come from a company that sort of like will sterilize the seed and when it gets to you, it's not as uh, living as it would have been if it's something that came from somebody, someone who'd harvested themselves from a seed that, and that's why eventually, um, uh, and not to stress you out, same thing, use what you have. So you can go back to your pantry and get or if you happen to have organic mung bean seeds organic garbanzo seeds go and start with those and those mm. are great spreads. they're really mm -hmm. nutritious yeah and um so would you be able to again just beginner's mind here would you be able to start with the garbanzo beans like the dried ones in your pantry so somebody okay so there's mixed results with that mm -hmm. um sometimes they're really old and then they don't sprout mm. Sometimes, um, sometimes they do, especially things like sesame. Try it out. Like I, I just encourage anybody to just have this experimental spirit mm -hmm. and go ahead and try out the coriander seeds in your pantry mm. and grow your own cilantro and try out um, the mustard seeds and grow your own mustard. Oh, baby fennel. Can we do fennel microgreens? <laughs> fennel seeds? I have mm. not tried that. That is I'm such totally a good. That was the first thing I thought because I just love that flavor. So I'm going to yeah. give that a go. Yes, for sure. I think I think that's the, the start of that ad growing adventure that you want to encourage anybody who's starting out is not to be afraid. I still kill stuff like in this in I used to be a black thumb. I'm still I'm still killing stuff. I just grow more stuff successfully now than mm -hmm. I had. You're playing the percentage game, aren't you, Nikki? <laughs> it's just yeah. like, yeah, you know, sometimes some stuff dies, but overall uh, it's a winning game. It is. It yeah. totally is. And so I'm back to the sprouts because I really want to feel like people are going to walk away from this show and they're going to grow something. So we've got our container. We've got our soil. We've got some seeds. What do we do next? So when you are growing microgreens for the first time, you want to make sure that the soil is damp mm -hmm. and you can just put water at first. You... Um, and then put the seeds in after you've watered 
great tip so the soil is damp already when the seeds go in done yes so sprinkle them really evenly through now the problem is if you water afterwards sometimes the the water will push some of those seeds and you don't like that like you want to have a nice forest when it grows up right so like patches of bald areas now if you that happens to you that's fine it's just your first try you know um so if if once you have the seeds sprinkled on top you can mist if you wanted to or just water again lightly it's better to water than not to water because at that first stage the seed is just waiting wanting all that water to imbibe the seed and burst and so that first stage of watering i would say just look at it you want it damp but not soggy where you need to spill out the water and um uh, let's see, a good tip for those who have coconut coir somewhere, they would put that over it. Um, What's coconut coir? So this is like a pro tip. If you have coconut coir, if you have coconut husk. Ah, then- okay, got it. Yeah, it's like the stringy bits of coconut. Um, yes, yeah. if you mm-hmm. have that, pencil shavings, and it's like mm-hmm. your little malt. Oh, yeah, <laughs> brilliant. You just use what you have. You can kind of, it's a microcosm of what you would do in the garden. So everything you're doing in your it's a smaller way of doing it but it's the same principles you have a layer of straw you have a layer of pencil shavings you know just kind of covering it so um so that it's not if to dry it out if in case you did water so then you you wait and it's about day three depending on what seeds you have day three or four um before the seed will start producing a shoot and when that happened um you it's it's only take it only takes like seven days and you want it once once the seedling the true seeds the cotyledon um if they have two true leaves pops out you want to put it in a windowsill so that they can get green because if there's no light, then the leaves of your microgreens don't turn green they'll just be kind of yellow because they're looking for that sunlight to create that photosynthetic of course and is it direct sun or is it just enough light from a really um bright window yes enough light from a bright window will do this is only you're not you're only growing them to seedling level it's not the full plant so a lot of this energy like i said is still coming from the seed itself Uh, and then when you around day seven to 10, depending on your seed, you start harvesting when they're about three inches tall. And then you can add them to your soups and your veggies, um, your your salad, your smoothies, your spaghetti, so so much more nutritious than and then you just amp up the flavor, but also the nutrition because these things Sprouts are incredible. And for people who get a lot of allergies, hives, psoriasis, dermatitis, eczema, all those aggravated kind of conditions, uh, people with histamine intolerance, sprouts are literally one of the best foods you can bring into the mix. Yes, Mm. totally detoxifying all those leafy greens in Mm. that power stage of their life where it's some say broccoli, I think, is one of those examples of it being even more um, powerful in that seedling stage when you eat them as sprouts than when they are as a broccoli green later when in life when they're all the full plant. Mm, so, absolutely. And do sprouts mind a bit of heat in the atmosphere? Like, is there a climate consideration we need to make in terms of temperature? Um, so most plants, they're... they're uh, Happy place is about 60 degrees, which is the indoor room temperature that we have here, 60, 65. Mm-hmm. They don't, um, because most sprouts are brassicas, peas, not the beans, I guess, but the brassicas like broccoli sprouts, those kinds of things, they can tolerate a little bit of chill if you're growing brassicas like radish sprouts or um, brassica families are all the members of are the mem- the members of the brassica family are radishes and um Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, 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 cabbage, mm. um, mustard. So these leafy greens that are during the winter and spring fall season, mm-hmm. these ones like temperatures, 
But honestly, if you keep them indoors, that's their happy places, really, whatever your temperature is that you like. <laughs> so yeah. you don't really sprout tomato sprouts. So, or, you know, <laughs> usually yeah, yeah, sprout yeah. greens. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I know that was a massive tangent, but what I really love is that for the beginners joining us who really desperately want to start connecting, growing, and who just always might feel like, if it's an expert in permaculture, it can kind of scare them and feel like, oh, there's still so much to do. We have no excuse. There is something everybody can do there. And you have been walked through step by step. I want to see you tagging us on Instagram. Uh, let's get some sprouts happening. I'm, I'm pumped. Yes. Everyone should have them at the dinner table, like right there for people that you just incorporate in your daily meal. Um, and that's true. Like when I started out in growing, I tried to ask some permies, permaculture teachers, not um, if they were interested in, in helping us set up our garden. And it always seemed like our garden was a little bit of a joke because they were really used to large scale, you know, big landscape, large farms. And I was like, no, 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 it's just a tiny backyard. And that's where we felt like there was no support for wanted but you can find your niche like permacultures are principles like all principles are things that you can apply whether you have a small space or a large space because they work in both cases and and sometimes the variables are different like what will grow in australia is different than what will grow here but the principles are the same we're still growing microgreens we're still growing you know in in a smaller way but the life in the soil is still happening and it's still producing yummy food so. mm. and so we've got our zone it's our zone zero right you called it before yeah. it's inside the home that's what we can grow there can you talk us through all the zones certainly so a uh, zone one would be your kitchen garden and um bill mollison the founder of permaculture used to say that uh if you walk out you wake up in the morning and you put on your fuzzy slippers and you walk out and harvest your chives for your omelet. If you come back in and your fuzzy slippers are wet, you've walked too far. <laughs> ah, cool. So it's so, literally just like on the balcony or porch or yeah. Yes. Or a, you literally just like a throw a stone's throw away from where your kitchen is. Zone two, it's um, often called semi-intensive, intensely cultivated area. So where most of your, what they call market crops, so your veggie garden will be in zone three. Sometimes you have to squish the zones, especially if you live in a small area. I'm, these are like zones that sometimes people, permaculture, people have created and they're thinking of a big farm where there's lots of different places so i where my zone one is where my kitchen garden is is basically it merges with my vegetable garden plot and that's zone two where traditionally you would have like okay your rows of carrots or your rows of celery or intercropped and with each other meaning they would be cropped not just one thing you'd not just be growing one yeah not thing. in a monoculture but in a, in a polyculture yeah um and then zone three traditionally is known as um the fruit orchard nut trees sometimes if you have animals in your backyard you would put them there too animals mm -hmm. meaning your your chickens, chickens. Like, yeah if you have chickens you are so blessed that's amazing where i have where i am now we don't we can't have them mm -hmm. um, but the more diverse your backyard is in terms of things that you grow in terms of animals that you keep bees if you can keep them the better so zone three would be where you keep your bees your your chickens and um any large fruit trees zone four not so visited you know minimal care you'd use for wild food gathering pasture sure wood cutting for fuel and timber if you have that area so we don't have that area really well maybe we do but it's more like the common land that's not really our property anymore and and where we just foraged yesterday um juniper berries for our sauerkraut so things like that that would be zone four and then zone five they they call it like wilderness for 
inspiration meditation, like a forest. Oh, wow. So Beautiful. Some, yeah. So you don't have to have all the zones. You just have to understand that they are there. It's the, it's the place that you frequently visit that you want to start with. And mm. sometimes they're not circles. They're not like happening in, in perfect circles around your house. Sometimes it'll be one area mm. is least visited because it's total access is cut off to that. So that's your wilderness and it's the street. Mm. So yeah, yeah that's- got it. And so, and really when we're talking regional versus city versus hyper urban, it's really just about compacting those zones in a way that it all happens a little bit closer to each other. And that's completely fine. In fact, it's more than fine. Absolutely. Mm. And did you guys feel like you were able to successfully with the small space you have incorporate all the zones in one way or another? Yes. I feel like even knowing where one zone ends and one zone begins is not so important in a small space. Mm. Um, as the zones go farther and farther away. So we have a gate that we have a fence that fences our property off in the gate. And that, you know, anything beyond that gate, of course, is more like a zone four. We have we have a plum tree out there. We also help uh, the the next door neighbors with their garden. So that's more like zone four. We don't have any chickens. Um, So yeah, I feel like we've incorporated as much as we can and overlap them and it's fine. The only the things that are clear, clearly delineated are the, are so because of the fences that we put in because of our house. So anything inside our house is zone zero, anything outside is zone one, anything farther away is zone two and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. So good. No, it really does. And in terms of, uh, I just want to ask you a couple of practical tips for people getting started. They might have just looked out at their backyard all these years and tidied up the lawn every now and then. And now they're thinking, I want change. Like, I actually, this is more than something I want to fantasize about. I want to start making it happen. Um, how do we know whether we've got good soil or not? What kind of tests can we do? Okay, so the, there are three components to like looking at soil. One is looking at the physical. How does your soil look? Like smelling it, touching it, tasting it even, how, smelling it. So is it dry? Is it brown? Because for me, the, the most fertile soil is like a chocolate cake. It's crumb. It has good tilth. It's dark like a chocolate cake. It's moist like a chocolate cake. It has good water holding capacity. Um, it's it has good structure. And then, if it's drier, then you can tell if something's dry or oxidized. It's very brown and light brown. So the lighter the color, you know, then you know physically it's not good. The next way that you can um, test your soil is to actually take a sample of it and send it for chemical analysis to a lab that does that. And they can see the micronutrients and the macronutrients that are present um, on average in your soil. It's always changing. And any metals that might not be a great thing in there. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. And toxins that you can, you can, you know, if you think that you've been contaminated in some way that your soil has been contaminated, you can check for that in a soil test. They'll do a chemical analysis of that. And then the third is that you can, make those same um, tests. The third um, is to look for soil life. So if you've seen a little earthworm, if you look at earthworms and usually in the past, farmers um, used to measure the quality of their land by the number of earthworms in a square foot that they could find. And so the more that they would find in one piece of one sample of land then they knew that was good for the land. So if you see life earthworms um little roly-polies or whatever those are good those are good signs bees even like in the soil that you have living soil with you Uh, you can also do some of those chemical tests especially like particularly for ph you can do them yourself using cabbage juice so if you have purple purple cabbage um, you can google google this and look at the colors and you put a little mason jar of purple cabbage juice and um with with soil and put your soil in there it'll change the color of your purple cabbage juice into acidic and so you can tell um there's some 
there, if you Google it, you'll see like, oh, if it's this color, then it's pH seven and so on and so forth. So amazing, uh, it's cool. really cool. So it can be a great science lesson for kids as well. Mm, I was just thinking that. And then all while we're doing this testing, we should get a worm farm going, right? Because then our castings are going to be able to help us get this soil fertile. Yes. So Mm. normally when somebody starts with us and they've never gardened before, I don't, unless they really feel strongly that they want, they're already composting anyway, which I think most of you guys in Australia already do. Mm. But here it's not that common. It's not that common to have it is and yeah. it isn't. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah, people. Yeah, there's exactly. a, still a big mental block around composting and worm farming here as well. Mm-hmm. It just depends. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I don't not because I don't want to overwhelm a person who's just starting gardening with that extra layer. Okay, got it. Yeah, I don't. I don't introduce that until they're okay. I'm already growing things. Things are starting to grow. I need to transplant them. Then we start. Um, composting and adding that compost in the soil but truly start with that if you are already like you are alex composting the foundation of all of this just like our gut the soil is like our gut so the foundation of this is the soil and you won't be able to grow those nice veggies if you don't use the gut bacteria in the earthworm in the red worms that are chewing those um nutrients up and making them available to in the soil for those plants so um, yes, composting is a great foundational thing. That's the next step, right? After you start getting that confidence, okay, I can grow, I, I can do this, then you can go ahead and and start your composting adventure, which is a whole other webinar, but I yeah, love going. I know, so good. And okay, so we've got, um, we've got our sprouts happening, we've tested our soil, we're starting to um, see that like, you know, maybe we'll need to add some organic compost and some organic soil to our mix, start building the health back up, um, watering more regularly, doing all those things that are going to help encourage more life. Uh, What about when it comes to shopping for those organic mixes and things? Because I've you know, sometimes you hear of uh, plastics or sometimes you hear of some of the wood shavings that are in there coming from contaminated pallets. And there's a lot of labeling confusion, like is organic enough when you see it on a bag of something or do we have to get to know brands like locally? How nerdy do we need to get when we're setting ourselves up from our department, like our hardware store or a gardening supply shop? Okay. So sometimes some people may think of miracle Grow slapping the word organic on their bags as threatening because then it make, makes you question whether that is the case, whereas they've been, since they have been selling us pesticides in the past. Um, but some people will think of this and say that we are actually, this is the culture changing and we're putting pressure on these big uh, companies to actually find ways to truly make their soil organic. So um, I think that whatever bag you buy in the store will not have that life that you're looking for i think it's a good basis for life i i'm not saying because some people will say that's just dirt and then they'll like (laughs) throw it away and whatever but i'm like if that's all you have right now and the tail the structure is good go use that and then inoculate it with the life in that's already endemically in your soil natively in your soil and other things like mycorrhizal fungi um, nitrogen fixing bacteria that you can purchase actually that uh, and your own compost, which is the best thing, you know, and just incorporate their leaf litter because there's still um, there's fungal things as well and bacterial and those those two players and, and other things like archaea that we're only starting to learn about now in the soil and in the gut. So we, um, what our role are is as gardeners, as stewards of this plot of soil is to just cultivate that life in it, no matter what soil we receive or we're given or we start out with. And then in the end, like permaculture is not a linear way of looking at things. It's a cyclical way of looking at things. So we start out with that first haul of soil, fine. But then every year, our goal is to build that soil up to become later the the source of good soil where people come to us and say, can I have some of your soil? And or um, do you have extra soil? Yeah, I've got so much of this compost and or even become same thing with the seeds is we start out buying the seeds. And then later on, we start saving little by little 
uh, it's not something you do as a first time gardener, of course, you, you buy the seeds, you buy what you need to to start rather than give yourself excuses that I can't because I don't know whether this has contaminated another line that I like to use, but I don't know anymore who to attribute to it's not mine. The solution to pollution is dilution. I don't know if you've had that guest before, but she's a health something. Um, and I also heard it on a podcast. Um, the solution to pollution is dilution. And so over time, if you do end up and you had that straw that was uh, in a field that had pesticide spray and you use that in your garden or you had that soil that was not exactly, that was miracle Grow and not organic or whatever, uh, then that can change and you can make that change happen. That can change into organic and you can lock up the toxins by putting, by introducing mushrooms, by growing mushrooms in them, by growing plants in them. The plants will know what to do, whereas we don't know what we're doing. We just we enlist their help and they'll know how to heal that soil and make it fertile again. Incredible, isn't it? So good. And I really love that your overarching message is uh, start with whatever the easiest option is for you to understand or access, because that is enough right now. It's about starting. And then you can get technical and there are so many fantastic, I mean, you guys have some fantastic educational resources on your website um, and we've put all the details in the show notes for people listening out there. We've got a ton of helpful links. Uh, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you can even seed shop and all those good things right from you guys. So that's great. Uh, the next thing I want to ask you is about... Uh, design and how you have actually created something that's going to help people uh, get going uh, regardless of the size of space they have. It's an app. Uh, and I'm very excited about that because I think the any way we can cut down the barriers for people to start with whatever they have is a very, very good thing. And uh, for years now, we've watched incredible growers on Instagram, been inspired by them, but it's kind of like that pile of cookbooks where you never make the recipe. Um, and I'm always interested in how we can actually break the mental barriers down between where someone is at and where someone desperately wants to go, but it kind of stays this pretty little fantasy uh, for whatever reason, whether they think it's too hard, whether they think they've got a time or money challenge, we put up blocks and tell ourselves stories, right? Uh, so I'm curious to see what this app is, how it's going to help people. Thank you for asking. The app is called Sage, and it's actually a fruit born out of our garden program called Grow It Yourself, mm -hmm. where our users were having trouble designing the backyard. And we would have to one by one, step by step, which is still the most beautiful organic way of designing, you know, look at their backyards and um, try to apply those permaculture principles into growing. And that's um, perfect if they live near you and you can consult, yeah. but like, that's not everybody yeah. lives in your backyard. Exactly. And so um, what, what my husband, who's a software engineer has done is he's created an app that right now is in beta and the beta is only being used by our grow it yourself members our clients because we want to really make sure that before we put it on kickstarter it's already been tested and we have all the information so what what it is essentially is it has a little bit of a wizard that walks you through how much do you eat anyway of this produce or how what do you want to grow what do you like to eat starts all the way from that question and and then how many pounds of it can you count do you calculate using this calculator does your family need for it for you to produce 100% of it 25% of it or whatnot because some some plants like kale you can produce 100% of it but some plants like put tomatoes or potatoes you'd have to like have a space for it and so putting all that information together. What is it that you're growing? What's your space? How much is it in the sunlight? Um, designing that with the, the crops in mind and then designing it for the yield as well. So then, then it'll spit out, you, you type in right now for America, you type in your zip code and there are national weather, um, historical averages of the temperature 
associated with that that are open source that you can that my husband you know you can easily download and then it it computes according to this your zip code this is your planting window and this is when you should plant this thing and then you it's plotted in a calendar and then that calendar gives you notifications so that you don't forget when to start them when to amazing them. how good and it's, is this uh northern hemisphere specific right, right now, now? yeah well, that's okay. There's plenty of wonderful Northern Hemisphere peeps that listen to the show. It's all good. Lucky you guys. Um, and is your dream to make it a global thing? Our dream is to make it global and really collaborative. Um, mm. There are other great software permaculture companies out there doing their own thing where they're looking at pests, for instance, or seed variety and performance in regions of certain seed varieties. And we're connected with some of them as well and some you know some fantastic it's data collaboration in this whole new age of um you know artificial intelligence but putting mm. it to good it's garden tech that's still in the end you're going to be going out there and doing the growing yeah it's exactly. just there. the tech is not there to be the garden robot yeah the tech is just to help aid you and break down the barriers like you said alex mm. um anybody who's starting to grow their own food oh my gosh I love it and now you mentioned their um pests and you've mentioned seed saving a couple of times so I just want to ask a couple of questions on this and I'll put the details of your sage app also just so people can bookmark it and uh, check in with it until it's ready to go um seed saving is there a better best way to do that so there are seed saving 101 if you were to start saving your seeds i would start with the things that are really simple like cilantro coriander um, beans that have dried up tomatoes are a little bit harder to save because they have a little bit of a coat each seed is different they're like people <laughs> so yeah so i mean some people successful i didn't know that seed saving of tomato was harder honestly until i i learned that from seed savers exchange because i thought i was successfully saving tomato seeds and i was so sometimes it's just um i not to not to is there a best way your question was is there a best way to save seeds right mm, yeah uh, first find the find the, the plant that you like want to grow the most grow it well and then when it comes to harvesting it then then take that plunge and save the seeds from the best fruit usually it's not when they're uh they're just ripe sometimes you have to go over like anything that's in the cucurbit family the pumpkins the squashes when you save seeds from those plants it's not the that you pick them when they look like they're ready to harvest you'll usually pick them when they're over ready to harvest same thing with lettuce and leafy greens you pick them once they're bolted yeah <laughs> yeah when they're bolted that's when the seeds come out um and i'd say just treasure that one start with one seed first because it can get overwhelming and then saving the seeds um right down drying them so there's different different seeds all of them need to be dried eventually mm. even and though, everything's a quick google away right it's not hard to get that information have, yes and we do have a webinar on the top three seeds like if you were to start saving seeds seed saving 101 basically mm. what are the three you would start um saving from and i cannot remember what they are <laughs> we didn't give the web <laughs> we hosted the I love I it. Know one of, You're like I me. Know one of, I don't even remember my recipes and I have to look them up on the website and like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Sometimes I yes. So I'm so um thank you. But that is um yeah, once you all of them have to be dried for them to keep, and some seeds will save for only one year, mm -hmm. such as onion seeds, but some and parsnip seeds, those will save. Will, will be viable for only one year and the um seeds that have th two to five years storage then you want to label that on your seed packet i usually mm -hmm. use 
envelopes to save my seeds in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of anything else plasticky, I just I tried coin envelopes. Then I can compost them afterwards. Even yeah, perfect. They keep the they keep the seed dry as Mm. well. Yeah, brilliant. And you can write on them to say what you need to remember, um, which evidently both of us have an issue with. So (laughs) there we go. Um, And then pests. Everyone worries about the pests and how to control the pests, but really one of the things about permaculture is there is a natural reduction in the need for control because you create an environment that is symbiotic right but if we do have the odd little guy that we really don't want there what are some of our uh options for um taking care of things without harming anything in the garden i think the most First, for the pests, um, the pest is just like Jeff Lawton says, is just an overpopulation of one species over mm. another. <laughs> so, so yeah, when it's you like have, it's like a pathogenic gut bacteria that's overgrown in your gut. Yeah, yeah they can really be in check, but they're not in your particular system. So you have to find like the predator or the pollinator plant that will support that predator mm. to that. Now, um, there are different ways of doing that. There's, and that's where you can confuse pests. Some pests, they fly from the top and then they will see if anything doesn't match, they will try to identify um, if they see like your crop standing out amidst everything and it's not intercrop, they will zone in and they know they're gonna attack that particular crop. But if you confuse the pest with smell by putting a lot of aromatic herbs around it, parsley, dill, to, to not just deter pests, but also attract their predators. Those are um, from the umbellifer, parsley, dill, cilantro, those guys, they like bringing out these flowers. They have a lot of umbels, a lot of different tiny flowers that support things like the draconid wasps, for instance, draconid wasps, for instance. Um, That's a great idea. Another thing in permaculture is that um, everything takes time. So one of the most persistent pests in our backyard for many years was the mosquito. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, tell us how to get rid of those guys. Oh my gosh. So they've had to, from, from the, from our kids, being in the hospital, my husband, um, we had, I took home one of those suits that you paper out of paper, they would normally just throw it and you, but you have to suit yourself up to go to the operating room. Mm-hmm. But it was, good. it was like wearing a fabric, that, a mask, but all over you. And, and so Dave, my husband would, would suit up in those. So he was mosquito proof and go out and try to do his stuff. And he'd yeah, still wow. Um, but the thing is, and that's why we we reach for the pesticides is because we want that we want that uh problem we just want it gone yeah yeah right away and so a nature- pesticide is kind of like well and it is an antibiotic in a way like where you just want the problem gone you want to do one course of it and then it's not your problem anymore but if you don't fix the underlying issue that problem just keeps coming back exactly and i think for um for that one, we even use an organic pesticide, and then all our all our plants wilted. Oh my goodness! <laughs> the mosquitoes were still there, mm. so it was so so much like an antibiotic in that sense. So what happens is it takes time. It takes time to rebuild that ecosystem so that the, we have lizards and we have birds that eat the and and um, dragonflies. So in the Philippines, um, if you see lizards, that's a really good thing because they'll eat all. Of and so what would you do to promote those lizards maybe more rockery or um if you if you have uh, other ways of promoting there's there's something called bacillus thuringis which is a little you can put in your pond so we have a little pond that's pumped so that the mosquitoes don't lay their eggs but um they there are it attracts the the dragonflies as well and if you have a pond that isn't pumped, then you put that Bacillus thuringiensis Bt dunk in there, and that's a mosquito bait for their larva. Um, it may or may not work. So it's like it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight, but over three years, we've seen a real reduction in the mosquitoes in the backyard during the summertime. It's because of the diversity of the plants, I think, more than anything, attract a diversity of predators for them. Mm-hmm. Perfect. 
And that's really a, such a great thing to, in simplicity, to just think, okay, we've got too much of this thing. Who likes to eat that thing? <laughs> Let's bring them in. How do we get them in? What kind of plants do we have to grow? It's just such an, a great example of what permaculture design is at its foundation. Yes, the more diverse your backyard, the more stable it becomes. Mm. Yeah. That and that's a, a great climate change lesson too, isn't it? The more we focus on biodiversity, the more stable our climate becomes. Yeah. Mm. Let's hope someone gets the memo soon. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for this chat. I feel like we really were able to give people some concrete advice. I love what you guys do and how you do it. There's such a generosity of spirit in the way you educate. You don't leave anyone behind. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful quality uh, of your work. Uh, so people can obviously find and look out for Sage as it becomes available uh, when you guys launch your Kickstarter, which I'm super excited about. But please, you know, connect uh, with the work uh, that Nikki and her husband are doing online. So many webinars, so much richness uh, on that website for people to tap into the archives on. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Nikki. Oh, likewise, Alex. I hope to continue this conversation again in the future and keep on listening to your awesome podcasts. Thanks, Nikki. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see, join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.